I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Apiango Line, a fortnightly podcast dedicated to preserving and promoting the local heritage and unique culture of the Upper Madawaska and Apiango River Valleys. We're here today with Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chapesky, Rob Filipkowski, and Lynn Stewart, all members of the Apiango Readers Theatre. They are all here to put us in a very special Christmas mood with no ordinary show. Rather, we thought it would be both entertaining and yet instructive to do something a little out of the ordinary to celebrate Christmas with a bit of a distinctive difference. In a phrase, celebrate it like people around here used to do back in the 19th century, when good folks such as Charlie Thomas ran a trading post at Golden Lake and managed somehow to get a Montreal Gazette delivered to him by mail in 1850. Or John Dennison, who settled at Dennison's Bridge, later to be renamed Cumbermere, when it got its first post office in 1864, and so it could begin taking deliveries of magazines published as far away as London, England. Or Josh Billings, who set up the first Barry's Bay post office just west of our present-day village in 1878, and where his post office could receive farm catalogs and general interest magazines from as far away as New York City. Indeed, those 19th century locals often turned to their favorite newspapers and magazines in the same way many of us now turn to our favorite television and internet channels. Even back then, they knew Christmas was not always just about attending Midnight Mass. It was also part and parcel of that curious social feeling that lasted throughout December and that was frequently fueled by special Christmas stories written by great freelance writers for newspapers and magazines that anybody could have delivered to their local post office, even in the upper Madawaska and Opiango River valleys. So, we sent an army of literary researchers to plow through thousands of old newspapers and dusty old magazines, some of them well over a century old, and on the hunt for unique Christmas stories, and especially classic, memorable stories that, shall we say, have fallen on hard times, if only because they have mostly been forgotten. And boy, did we find the motherlode. So today, for your listening pleasure, the Apiango Readers Theatre offers up four such Christmas short stories written by some of the world's greatest writers, and not all of them serious, heartbreaking, or even religious. In fact, at least two of them have a giddy humorous twist, if not that certain warm and cozy Christmas feeling we all get addicted to at this time of year. From where else? The Hallmark Countdown to Christmas. We know a lot of you luxuriate in those Christmas bodice rippers produced for the Hallmark Channel. You know, those Christmas stories about those sweet young women who have to leave their big city jobs to go back to their rural hometowns to save Christmas. But when they get there, their lives are turned topsy-turvy with endless catastrophe. Retrograde amnesia, lost luggage, no room at the inn, some old boyfriend they have to work with, stories full of the usual trials and tribulations of young love where you're always in need of a box of Kleenex at the ready. But those modern 21st century TV Christmas movies offer up nothing really new. Their plot lines are as old as the weathered logs and mortar of the old Bark Lake Post Office still standing and built in 1864. Mostly, those stories revolve around those same old tried-and-true plot twists. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, bedlam ensues, thanks to countless snowball fights, sugar cookie recipes, 
glass snow globes, gingerbread houses, trips to the local Christmas tree lots or other shenanigans, building snowmen or, or at the local skating rink, and sundry runs in with Santa, if not cups of hot chocolate and the occasional sleigh ride. But then heartbreak threatens just before somehow a Christmas miracle miraculously happens, and then voila, only moments before the credits roll, boy kisses girl, and all is well with the world by late Christmas Eve. Now, we're not knocking a good old on-the-edge-of-your-seat tearjerker rom-com, but artists and writers have been telling that same story for centuries without the benefit of Netflix or the Internet. Indeed, our first Christmas story takes you behind the scenes of how one such Christmas story first got written months ahead of Christmas. It was written by A.A. Milne, author of Winnie the Pooh, who is also a playwright, novelist, short story writer, humorist, and especially towards the end of the 19th century, an inveterate freelance writer for those famous Fleet Street general interest magazines of London, England. Mr. Mill knew a thing or two about that fine commercial art of composing those hallmark stories of his day, and so we take you now to one of those hard-pressed editorial establishments on Fleet Street near the end of the 19th century, and where we can almost see and hear just how one of those Christmas stories got written. Here is Jeff Bowman, playing the hard-pressed freelance writer of Fleet Street, fresh from his starving artist's garret, tucked away somewhere along the Thames, wistfully known back in the day as The Embankment. He's joined by Lynn Stewart, who plays an equally hard-pressed magazine editor, who commissioned that Christmas story assignment and has, shall we say, certain expectations about what hackneyed cliches, um, essential Christmas ingredients, should go into such a story. Yuletide. London at Yuletide. <sighs> and so it begins. A mantle of white lay upon the embankment where our story opens, gleaming and glistening as it caught the rays of the cold December sun. An embroidery of white fringed the trees, and under a canopy of white the proud palaces of Savoy and Cecil reared their silent heads. The mighty river in front was motionless, but the finger of death had laid its icy hand upon it. Above, the hard blue sky stretching to eternity. Below, the white purity of innocence. London in the grip of winter. Oh, I like this. This is going to be good. A cold day, was it not? Very. <clears throat> Back to it. All at once, the quiet of the morning was disturbed. In the distance, a bell rang out, sending a joyous paean to the heavens. Another took up the word, and then another, and another. Westminster caught the message from Bartholomew, the son of thunder, and flung it to Giles without, who gave it gently to Andrew by the wardrobe. Suddenly the air was filled with bells, all chanting together of peace and happiness, mirth and jollity, a frenzy of bells. The Duke, father of four fine children, waking in his highland castle, heard and smiled as he thought of his little ones. The merchant prince, turning over in his magnificent residence, heard and turned again to sleep with love for all mankind in his heart. The pauper, in his workhouse, up betimes, heard and chuckled at the prospect of his Christmas dinner. And on the embankment, Robert Hardrow, with a cynical smile on his lips, listened to the splendid irony of it. Uh, we really are getting to the story now, are we not? That that was all local colour. 
I want to make it clear that it was Christmas. Ah,、uh, yes, yes, quite so. This is certainly a Christmas story. I think I shall like Robert. <clears throat> yes, it was Christmas Day. So much, at least, was clear to him. With that same cynical smile on his lips, he pulled his shivering rags about him and half unconsciously felt the growth of beard about his chin. Nobody would recognize him now. His friends, as he had thought them, would pass by without a glance for the poor outcast near them. The women that he had known would draw their skirts away from him in horror. Even Lady Alice, Lady Alice, the cause of it all. His thoughts flew back to that last scene, but twenty-four hours ago, when they had parted for ever. As he had entered the hall, he had half wondered to himself if there could be anybody in the world that day happier than himself. Tall, well-connected, a vice president of the Tariff Reform League, and engaged to the sweetest girl in England, he, Robert Hardrow, had been the envy of all. Little did he think that that very night he was to receive his congé. What mattered it now? How or why they had quarrelled? A few hasty words, a bitter taunt, tears, and then the end. A last cry from her: "Go and never let me see your face again." A last sneer from him: "I will go, but first give me back the presents I have promised you." Then a slam door and. Silence. What use without her guidance to try to keep straight any more? Bereft of her love, Robert had sunk steadily. Gambling, drink, morphia, billiards, and cigars—he had taken to them all until now. In the wretched figure of the outcast on the embankment, you would never have recognized the once spruce figure of handsome Hardrow. It all seems to have happened rather rapidly, does it not? Twenty-four hours ago, he had been. You forget that this is a short story. Handsome Hardrow, how absurd it sounded now! He had let his beard grow; his clothes were in rags. A scar over one eye testified. Oh yes, yes, yes! Of course, I quite admit that a man might go to the bad in twenty-four hours, but would his beard grow? Look、like... here! You've heard of a man going grey with trouble in a single night, haven't you? Well, certainly. Well, it's the same idea as that. Oh, quite so, quite so. Now, now, where was I? A scar over one eye was just testifying. Well, I suppose he had two eyes in the ordinary way. Ah, testified to a drunken frolic of an hour or two ago. Never before thought the policeman, as he passed upon his beat, had such a pitiful figure cowered upon the embankment and prayed for the night to cover him. That. Uh, he was. Um, uh, uh, yes. To tell the truth,、uh, I'm rather stuck for the moment. What is the trouble? Well, I don't quite know what to do with Robert for ten hours or so. Couldn't he go somewhere by a local line? This is not a humorous story. The point is that I want him to be outside a certain house, some twenty miles from town, at eight o'clock that evening. Well, if I were Robert, I should certainly start at once. No, no, I have it. As he sat there, his thoughts flew over the bridge of years, and he was wafted on the wings of memory to other and happier Yuletides. That Christmas when he had received his first bicycle, that Christmas abroad, the merry house party at the place of his Cambridge friend, Yuletide at the Towers where he had first met Alice. Ah. 
Ten hours passed rapidly thus. Perhaps I could add a musical interlude to denote the flight of years. Well, I could give the listener time for a sandwich. Robert got up and shook himself. One moment. This is a Christmas story. When are you coming to the turtle dove? I, I really can't be bothered about turtle doves just now. I assure you, all the best Christmas stories begin like this nowadays. We may get to a turtle dove later, I cannot say. Well, we must. My listeners expect a turtle dove, and they shall have it. And a wassail bowl, and a turkey, and a Christmas uh, tree, and a... Uh, uh, yes, yes, but wait. We shall come to little Elsie soon, and then perhaps it will be all right. Ooh, little Elsie, good. Robert got up and shook himself. Then he shivered miserably as the cold wind cut through him like a knife. For a moment he stood motionless, gazing over the stone parapet into the dark river beyond, and as he gazed a thought came into his mind. Why not end it all, here and now? He had nothing to live for. One swift plunge, and— You forget! You forget! The river was frozen. Dash it! I was just going to say that. But no— even in this fate was against him. The river was frozen over. He turned away with a curse. What happened afterwards, Robert never quite understood. Almost unconsciously, he must have crossed one of the numerous bridges which spanned the river and joined North London to South. Once on the other side, he seems to have set his face steadily before him and to have dragged his weary limbs on and on, regardless of time and place. He walked like one in a dream, his mind drugged by the dull narcotic of physical pain. Suddenly, he realized that he had left London behind him and was in the more open spaces of the country. The houses were more scattered. The recurring villa of the clerk had given place to the isolated mansion of the stockbroker. Each residence stood in its own splendid grounds, surrounded by fine old forest trees and approached by a long carriage sweep. Electric... Quite so, quite so, the whole forming a magnificent estate for a retired gentleman. Never mind that. Robert stood at the entrance to one of these houses, and the iron entered into his soul. How different was this man's position from his own? What right had this man a perfect stranger, to be happy and contented in the heart of his family while he, Robert, stood a homeless wanderer, alone in the cold. Almost unconsciously, he wandered down the drive, hardly realizing what he was doing until he was brought up by the gay lights of the windows. Still, without thinking, he stooped down and peered into the brilliantly lit room above him. Within, all was jollity. Beautiful women moved to and fro, and the happy laughter of children came to him. Elsie, he heard someone call, and a childish treble responded. Uh, now perhaps a turtle dove? I am very sorry. I have just remembered something rather sad. Fact is that two days before, Elsie had forgotten to feed the turtle dove, and in consequence, it had died before this story opens. Oh, that is really very awkward. I have already arranged with an artist to do some pictures, and I remember I particularly ordered a turtle dove and a wassail. What about the wassail? Elsie always had her porridge upstairs. A terrible thought had come into Robert's head. It was nearly twelve o'clock. The house party was retiring to bed. He heard the good nights wafted through the open window. The lights went out. 
to reappear upstairs. Presently they too went out, and Robert was alone with the darkened house. The temptation was too much for a conscience already sodden with billiards, golf, and cigars. He flung a leg over the sill and drew himself gently into the room. At least he would have one good meal. He, too, would have his Christmas dinner before the end came. He switched the light on and turned eagerly to the table. His eyes ravenously scanned the contents. Turkey, mince pies, plum pudding, all was there as in the days of his youth. Ah, this is better. I ordered a turkey, I remember. What about the mistletoe and the holly? I rather think I asked for some of them. We must let the listeners take something for granted. Well, I'm not so sure. Couldn't you say something like this? Holly and mistletoe hung in festoons upon the wall. Indeed. Even holly and mistletoe hung in festoons upon the wall. Thank you. With a sigh of content, Hardrove flung himself into a chair and seized a knife and fork. Soon a plate liberally heaped with good things was before him. Greedily he set to work, with the appetite of a man who had not tasted food for several hours. Good evening, said a voice. Are you Father Christmas? Robert turned suddenly and gazed in amazement at the white-robed figure in the doorway. Elsie, he murmured huskily. Well, how did he know her name, and why huskily? He didn't know, he guessed, and his mouth was full. Are you Father Christmas? repeated Elsie. Robert felt at his chin and thanked heaven again that he had let his beard grow. Almost mechanically he decided to wear the mask, in short, to dissemble. Yes, my dear, I just looked in to know what you would like me to bring you. You're late, aren't you? Oughtn't you to have come this morning? Oh, this is splendid. This quite reconciles me to the absence of the turtle dove. But what was Elsie doing downstairs? I am making Robert ask her that question directly. Oh, but yes, just tell me now, between friends. She had left her teddy bear in the room and couldn't sleep without it. Oh, I knew that was it. If I'm late, dear, said Robert with a smile, why, so are you. The good food and wine in his veins were doing their work, and a pleasant warmth was stealing over Robert Hardrow. He found to his surprise that airy banter still came easy to him. To what, he continued, do I owe the honor of this meeting? I came downstairs for my dolly, said Elsie, the one you sent me this morning. Do you remember? Of course I do, my dear. And what have you bought me now, Father Christmas? Robert started. If he was to play the role successfully, he must find something to give her now. The remains of the turkey, a pair of finger bowls, his old hat. All these came hastily into his mind and were dismissed. He had nothing of value on him. All had been pawned long ago. But there was. The gold locket studded with diamonds and rubies which contained Alice's photograph the one memento of her that he had kept, even when the pangs of starvation were upon him, he brought it from its resting place next to his heart. A little something to wear around your neck, child, he said. See? Oh, thank you, said Elsie. Why, it opens. Yes, it opens, said Robert moodily. Why, it's Aleth, Sister Aleth. Ha! I thought you'd like that. Robert leapt to his feet as if he'd been shot. Who? My sister Alice, does you know her too? Alice's sister. Heavens, 
He covered his face with his hands. The door opened. Ha! Again! What are you doing here? Elsie said a voice. Go to bed, child. Why, who is this? It's Father Christmas, thither. Well, how exactly do you work the lisping? What do you mean? Don't children of Elsie's tender years lisp sometimes? Yes, but just now she said Christmas quite correctly. I'm glad you noticed that. That was an effect which I intended to produce. Lisping is brought about by placing the tongue upon the hard surface of the palate, and in cases where the subject is unduly excited or influenced by emotion, the lisp becomes more pronounced. In this case... Yes, I see. Send her away, cried Robert, without raising his head. The door opened and closed again. Well, said Alice calmly, and who are you? You may have lied to this poor child, but you cannot deceive me. You are not Father Christmas. The miserable man raised his shame-faced head and looked haggardly at her. Alice, he muttered, don't you remember me? She gazed at him earnestly. Robert, but how changed! Since we parted, Alice, much has happened. Yet it seems only yesterday that I saw you. Well, it was only yesterday. Yes, 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 yes. Don't lift her up now. To me it has seemed years. But what are you doing here, said Alice. Rather, what are you doing here, answered Robert. Well, I think Alice's question was the more reasonable one. I live here. Robert gave a sudden cry. Your house. Then I have broken into your house. Alice, send me away. Put me in prison. Do what you will to me. I can never hold up my head again. Lady Alice looked gently at the wretched figure in front of her. I'm glad to see you again, she said, because I wanted to say that it was my fault. Alice. Can you forgive me? Forgive you? If you knew what my life has been since I left you, if you knew into what paths of wickedness I have sunk, how only this evening, unnerved by excess, I have deliberately broken into this house, your house, in order to obtain food. Already I have eaten more than half a turkey and the best part of a plum pudding. I, with a gesture of infinite compassion, she stopped him. Then let us forgive each other, she said with a smile. A new year is beginning, Robert. He took her in his arms. Listen, he said. In the distance, the bells began to ring in the new year. A message of hope to all weary travellers on life's highway. It was New Year's Day. I thought Christmas Day had started on the embankment. This would be Boxing Day. I, I'm sorry, but it must end like that. I must have my bells. Oh, that's all very well. I have a good deal to explain as it is. Some of your story doesn't fit the pictures at all, and it is too late now to get new ones done. Well, I'm afraid I cannot work to order. Oh, yes, I know. The artist said the same thing. Well, I must manage somehow, I suppose. Goodbye. Rotten weather for August, isn't it? That was Jeff Bowman and Lynn Stewart reading A. A. Milne's The Making of a Christmas Story, published in the lead up to Christmas in 1912. Now it's time for a little Chekhov, that great Russian playwright and short story writer who authored more than a few classic Christmas stories. This one, published on December 21st, 1887, is simply entitled Boys. But don't let that deceive you. It's a great Christmas story. And it's read by Leslie Betts. Volodya's come, someone shouted in the yard. Master Volodya's here, bawled Natalia the cook, running into the dining room. Oh, my goodness! The whole Karlov family, who had been expecting their Volodya from hour to hour, rushed to the windows. 
At the front door stood a wide sledge with three white horses and a cloud of steam. The sledge was empty, for Volodya was already in the hall, untying his hood with red and chilly fingers. His school overcoat, his cap, his snow boots, and the hair on his temples were all white with frost, and his whole figure from head to foot diffused such a pleasant, fresh smell of the snow that the very sight of him made one want to shiver and say, Brr! His mother and aunt ran to kiss and hug him. Natalia plumped down at his feet and began pulling off his snow boots. His sisters shrieked with delight. The doors creaked and banged, and Volodya's father, in his waistcoat and shirt sleeves, ran out into the hall with scissors in his hand and cried out in alarm, We were expecting you all yesterday. Did you come all right? Had a good journey? Mercy on us, you might let him say how do you do to his father. I am his father, after all. Boo! barked the huge black dog Millard in a deep bass, tapping with his tail on the walls and furniture. For two minutes, there was nothing but a general hubbub of joy. After the first outburst of delight was over, the Korolovs noticed that there was, besides their Volodya, another small person in the hall, wrapped up in scarves and shawls and white with frost. He was standing perfectly still in a corner in the shadow of a big fox-lined overcoat. Volodya, darling, who is it? asked his mother in a whisper. Oh, cried Volodya, this is, let me introduce my friend Lentilov, a schoolfellow in the second class. I have brought him to stay with us. Delighted to hear it. You are very welcome, the father said cordially. Excuse me, I have been at work without my coat. Please, come in. Natalia, help Mr. Lentilov off with his things. Mercy on us, do turn that dog out. He is unendurable. A few minutes later, Volodya and his friend Lentilov, somewhat dazed by their noisy welcome and still red from the outside cold, were sitting down to tea. The winter sun, making its way through the snow and the frozen tracery on the window panes, gleamed on the samovar and plunged its pure rays in the tea basin. The room was warm, and the boys felt as though the warmth and the frost were struggling together with a tingling sensation in their bodies. Well, Christmas will soon be here, the father said in a pleasant sing-song voice, rolling a cigarette of dark reddish tobacco. It doesn't seem long since the summer, when Mama was crying at your going, and here you are back again. Time flies, my boy. Before you have time to cry out, old age is upon you. Mr. Lentilov, take some more. Please, help yourself. We don't stand on ceremony. Volodya's three sisters... Katya, Sonia, and Masha, the eldest was eleven, sat at the table and never took their eyes off the newcomer. Lentilov was of the same height and age as Volodya, but not as round-faced and fair-skinned. He was thin, dark, and freckled. His hair stood up like a brush, his eyes were small, and his lips were thick. He was, in fact, distinctly ugly, and if he had not been wearing the school uniform— he might have been taken for the son of a cook. He seemed morose, did not speak, and never once smiled. The little girls staring at him immediately came to the conclusion that he must be a very clever and learned person. 
He seemed to be thinking about something all the time and was so absorbed in his own thoughts that whenever he was spoken to, he started, threw his head back and asked to have the question repeated. The little girls noticed that Volodya, who had always been so merry and talkative, also said very little, did not smile at all, and hardly seemed to be glad to be home. All the time they were at tea, he only once addressed his sisters, and then he said something very strange. He pointed to the samovar and said, In California they don't drink tea, but gin. He too seemed absorbed in his own thoughts, and to judge by the looks that passed between him and his friend Lentilov, their thoughts were the same. After tea, they all went into the nursery. The girls and their father took up the work that had been interrupted by the arrival of the boys. They were making flowers and frills for the Christmas tree out of paper of different colors. It was an attractive and noisy occupation. Every fresh flower was greeted by the little girls with shrieks of delight, even of awe, as though the flower had dropped straight from heaven. Their father was in ecstasies too, and every now and then he threw the scissors on the floor in vexation at their bluntness. Their mother kept running into the nursery with an anxious face, asking, Who has taken my scissors? Ivan Nikolaitch, have you taken my scissors again? Mercy on us! I'm not even allowed a pair of scissors! Their father would respond in a lachrymose voice, and flinging himself back in the chair, he would pretend to be a deeply injured man. But a minute later, he would be in ecstasies again. On his former holidays, Volodya too had taken part in the preparations for the Christmas tree, or had been running in the yard to look at the snow mountain that the watchman and the shepherd were building. But this time, Volodya and Lentilov took no notice whatever of the colored paper, and did not once go into the stable. They sat in the window and began whispering to one another, then they opened an atlas and looked carefully at a map. First to Perm, Lentilov said in an undertone. From there to Tumen, then Tomsk, then, then Kamchatka. There the Samoyeds take one over Bering Straits in boats. And then we are in America. There are lots of furry animals there. And California, asked Volodya. California's lower down. We've only to get to America, and California is not far off, and one can get a living by hunting and plunder. All day long, Lentilov avoided the little girls and seemed to look at them with suspicion. In the evening, he happened to be left alone with them for five minutes or so. It was awkward to be silent. He cleared his throat morosely, rubbed his left hand against his right, looked sullenly at Katya and asked, Have you read Maine Reed? No, I haven't. I say, can you skate? Absorbed in his own reflections, Lentilov made no reply to this question. He simply puffed out his cheeks and gave a long sigh as though he were very hot. He looked up at Katya once more and said, When a herd of bison stampedes across the prairie, the earth trembles and the frightened mustangs kick and neigh. He smiled impressively and added, And the Indians attack the trains too, but worst of all, are the mosquitoes and the termites. Why, what's that? They're something like ants, but with wings. They bite fearfully. Do you know who I am? Mr. Lentilov? No, I am Montahomo, the hawk's claw, chief of the ever-victorious. Masha, the youngest, looked at him 
and then into the darkness out of the window and said, wondering, and we had lentils for supper yesterday. Lentilov's incomprehensible utterances and the way he was always whispering with Volodya and the way Volodya seemed to be now always thinking about something instead of playing, all this was strange and mysterious. And the two elder girls, Katya and Sonia, began to keep a sharp lookout on the boys. At night, when the boys had gone to bed, the girls crept to their bedroom door and listened to what they were saying. Ah, oh, what they discovered! The boys were planning to run away to America to dig for gold. They had everything ready for the journey. A pistol, two knives, biscuits, a burning glass to serve instead of matches, a compass, and four rubles in cash. They learned that the boys would have to walk some thousands of miles and would have to fight tigers and savages on the road. Then they would get gold and ivory, slay their enemies, become pirates, drink gin, and finally marry beautiful maidens and make a plantation. The boys interrupted each other in their excitement. Throughout the conversation, Lentilov called himself Montahomo the Hawk's Claw, and Volodya was my pale-faced brother. Mind you don't tell Mama, said Katya as they went back to bed. Volodya will bring us gold and ivory from America, but if you tell Mama, he won't be allowed to go. The day before Christmas Eve, Lentilov spent the whole day poring over the map of Asia and making notes, while Volodya, with a languid and swollen face that looked as though it had been stung by a bee, walked around the rooms and ate nothing. And once he stood still before the holy image in the nursery, crossed himself and said, Lord, forgive me a sinner. Lord, have pity on my poor, unhappy mamma. In the evening, he burst out crying. On saying good night, he gave his father a long hug and then hugged his mother and sisters. Katya and Sonia knew what was the matter, but little Masha was puzzled, completely puzzled. Every time she looked at Lentilov, she grew thoughtful and said with a sigh, When Lent comes, nurse says we shall have to eat peas and lentils. Early in the morning of Christmas Eve, Katya and Sonia slipped quietly out of bed and went to find out how the boys meant to run away to America. They crept to their door. Then you don't mean to go? Lentilov was saying angrily. Speak out! Aren't you going? Oh dear, Volodya wept softly. How can I go? I feel so unhappy about Mama. My pale-faced brother, I pray you, let us set off. You declared you were going. You egged me on. And now the time comes, you funk it? I, I'm, I'm not funking it, but I, I'm sorry for Mama. Say once and for all, are you going or are you not? I am going, only, only wait a little. I want to be at home a little. In that case, I will go by myself, Lentilov declared. I can get on without you. And you wanted to hunt tigers and fight. Since that's how it is, give me back my cartridges. At this, Volodya cried so bitterly that his sisters could not help crying too. Silence followed. So you're not coming, Lentilov began again. I, I am coming. Well then, put on your things then. And Lentilov tried to cheer Volodya up by singing the praises of America, growling like a tiger, pretending to be a steamer, scolding him, and promising to give him all the ivory and lions and tiger skins. 
and this thin, dark boy with his freckles and his bristling shock of hair impressed the little girls as an extraordinary, remarkable person. He was a hero, a determined character who knew no fear, and he growled so ferociously that, standing at the door, they really might imagine there was a tiger or lion inside. When the little girls went back to their room and dressed, Katya's eyes were full of tears, and she said, Oh, I feel so frightened. Everything was as usual till two o'clock when they sat down to dinner. Then it appeared that the boys were not in the house. They sent to the servants' quarters, to the stables, to the bailiff's cottage. They were not to be found. They sent into the village. They were not there. At tea, too, the boys were still absent, and by supper time, Volodya's mother was dreadfully uneasy and even shed tears. Late in the evening, they sent again to the village. They searched everywhere and walked along the river bank with lanterns. Heavens, what a fuss there was! Next day, the police officer came, and a paper of some sort was written out in the dining room. Their mother cried. All of a sudden, a sledge stopped at the door with three white horses and a cloud of steam. Volodya's come! Someone shouted in the yard. Master Volodya's here! bawled Natalia, running into the dining room, and Millard barked his deep bass, Roof! It seemed that the boys had been stopped in the arcade, where they had gone from shop to shop asking where they could get gunpowder. Volodya burst into sobs as soon as he came into the hall and flung himself on his mother's neck. The little girls, trembling, wondered with terror what would happen next. They saw their father take Volodya and Lentilov into his study, and there he talked to them a long while. Is this a proper thing to do? Their father said to them. I only pray they won't hear of it at school. You would both be expelled. You ought to be ashamed, Mr. Lentilov, really. It's not at all the thing to do. You began it, and I hope you will be punished by your parents. How could you? Where did you spend the night? At the station, Lentilov answered proudly. Then Volodya went to bed and had a compress steeped in vinegar on his forehead. A telegram was sent off, and next day a lady, Lentilov's mother, made her appearance and bore off her son. Lentilov looked morose and haughty to the end, and he did not utter a single word at taking leave of the little girls. But he took Katya's book and wrote in it as a souvenir, Montehomo, the hawk's claw, chief of the ever-victorious. That was Leslie Betts reading Anton Chekhov's short story entitled Boys, published during Christmas in 1887. Next up is a very different kind of Christmas story, but the more you think about what the author wrote, the more it gets closer to the true meaning of Christmas, despite seeming to start from the wrong end of the rainbow. Here's Christmas Eve, written by Guy de Montpassat and published in 1882. It's read by Rob Filipkowski. The Christmas Eve Supper... Oh, no, I shall never go in for that again. Stout Henri Templier said that in a furious voice, as if someone had proposed some crime to him, while the others laughed and said, What are you flying into a rage about? Because a Christmas Eve supper played me the dirtiest trick in the world, and ever since I have felt an insurmountable horror for that night of imbecile gaiety. Tell us what it was. You want to know what it was? Very well, then. Just listen. You remember how cold it was two years ago at Christmas? Cold enough to kill poor people in the streets. 
The Seine was covered with ice. The pavements froze one's feet through the soles of one's boots, and the whole world seemed to be at the point of going to pot. I had a big piece of work on, and so I refused every invitation to supper, as I preferred to spend the night at my writing table. I dined alone, and then began to work. But about ten o'clock I grew restless at the thought of the gay and busy life all over Paris, at the noise in the streets which reached me in spite of everything, at my neighbor's preparations for supper, which I heard through the walls. I hardly knew any longer what I was doing. I wrote nonsense, and at last I came to the conclusion that I had better give up all hope of producing any good work that night. I walked up and down my room. I sat down and got up again. I was certainly under the mysterious influence of the enjoyment outside, and I resigned myself to it. So I rang for my servant and said to her, Angela, go and get a good supper for two. Some oysters, a cold partridge, some crayfish, hams and some cakes. Put out two bottles of champagne, lay the cloth, and go to bed. She obeyed in some surprise, and when all was ready, I put on my great coat and went out. A great question was to be solved. Whom was I going to bring in to supper? My female friends had all been invited elsewhere, and if I had wished to have one, I ought to have seen about it beforehand. So I thought that I would do a good deed at the same time, and I said to myself, Paris is full of poor and pretty girls who will have nothing on their table tonight, and who are on the lookout for some generous fellow. I will act the part of Providence to one of them this evening, and I will find one if I have to go into every brothel and have to question them and hunt for one till I find one of my choice. And I started off on my search. I certainly found many poor girls who were on the lookout for some adventure, but they were ugly enough to give any man a fit of indigestion, or thin enough to freeze as they stood if they had stopped. And you all know that I have a weakness for stout women. The more flesh they have the better I like them, and a female colossus would drive me out of my senses with pleasure. Suddenly, opposite the Théâtre des Vérités, I saw a face to my liking, a good head, and then two protuberances, that on the chest that was very beautiful, and second one on the stomach, simply surprising. It was the stomach of a fat goose. I trembled with pleasure and said, "'By Jove, what a fine girl!' It only remained for me to see her face. A woman's face is the dessert, while the rest is the joint. I hastened on and overtook her, and turned round suddenly under a gas lamp. She was charming, quite young, dark, with large black eyes, and I immediately made my proposition, which she accepted without any hesitation. And a quarter of an hour later, we were sitting at supper in my lodgings. Oh, how comfortable it is here, she said as she came in and she looked about her with evident satisfaction at having found a supper and a bed on that bitter night. She was superb, so beautiful that she astonished me, and so stout that she fairly captivated me. She took off her cloak and hat, sat down, and began to eat. But she seemed in low spirits, and sometimes her pale face twitched as if she was suffering from some hidden sorrow. "'Have you anything troubling you?' I asked her. "'Bah, don't let us think of troubles.' and she began to drink. She emptied her champagne glass at a draught, filled it again, and emptied it again, without stopping, and soon a little colour came into her cheeks, and she began to laugh. I adored her already, kissed her continually, 
and discovered that she was neither stupid nor common nor coarse as ordinary streetwalkers are. I asked for some details about her life, but she replied, My little fellow, that is no business of yours. Alas, an hour later, at last, it was time to go to bed. And while I was clearing the table, which had been laid in front of the fire, she undressed herself quickly and got in. My neighbors were making a terrible din, singing and laughing like lunatics. And so I said to myself, I was quite right to go out and bring in this girl. I should never have been able to do any work. At that moment, however, a deep groan made me look round, and I said, What is the matter with you, my dear? She did not reply, but continued to utter painful sighs as if she were suffering horribly, and I continued, Do you feel ill? And suddenly she uttered a cry, a heart-rending cry, and I rushed up to the bed with a candle in my hand. Her face was distorted with pain, and she was wringing her hands, panting and uttering long, deep, groans, which sounded like a rattle in the throat, and which are so painful to hear. And I asked her in consternation, What is the matter with you? Do tell me what is the matter. Oh, my stomach, my stomach, she said. I pulled up the bedclothes, and I saw, My friends, she was in labor. Then I lost my head, and I ran and knocked at the wall with my fist, shouting, Help! Help! My door was opened almost immediately, and a crowd of people came in. Men in evening dress, women in low necks, harlequins, Turks, musketeers, and this inroad startled me so that I could not explain myself, and they, who had thought that some accident had happened, or that a crime had been committed, could not understand what was the matter. At last, however, I managed to say, This, this woman is being confined. Then they looked at her and gave their opinion, and a friar especially declared that he knew all about it, and wished to assist nature. But as they were all as drunk as pigs, I was afraid that they would kill her, and I rushed downstairs without my hat to fetch an old doctor who lived in the next street. When I came back with him, the whole house was up. The gas on the stairs had been relighted. The lodgers from every floor were in my room, while four boatmen were finishing my champagne and lobsters. As soon as they saw me, they raised a loud shout, and a milkmaid presented me with a horrible little wrinkled specimen of humanity that was mewing like a cat and said to me, It is a girl. The doctor examined the woman, declared that she was in a dangerous state, as the event had occurred immediately after supper, and he took his leave, saying he would immediately send a sick nurse and a wet nurse. And an hour later, the two women came, bringing all that was requisite with them. I spent the night in my armchair, too distracted to be able to think of the consequences. And almost as soon as it was light, the doctor came again, and found his patient very ill, and said to me, Your wife, monsieur. She is not my wife, I interrupted him. Very well, then, your mistress. It does not matter to me. He told me what must be done for her, what her diet must be, and then wrote a prescription. What was I to do? Could I send the poor creature to the hospital? I should have been looked upon as a brute in the house and in all the neighborhood. And so I kept her in my rooms, and she had my bed for six weeks. I sent the child to some peasants at Poissy to be taken care of, and she still cost me fifty francs a month. For as I had paid at first, I shall be obliged to go on paying as long as I live. And later on, she will believe that I am her father. But to crown my misfortunes, 
When the girl had recovered, I found that she was in love with me, madly in love with me, the baggage. Well, she had grown as thin as a homeless cat, and I turned the skeleton out of doors, but she watches for me in the streets, hides herself, so that she may see me pass, stops me in the evening when I go out, in order to kiss my hand, and in fact, worries me enough to drive me mad. And that is why I never keep Christmas Eve now. That was Rob Filipkowski reading Guy de Montpesset's short story, Christmas Eve. It was published in 1882. Last but not least, we have an excerpt from a story that most everybody knows, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. It was published just before Christmas, 1843, though most people know it as that fabulous old 1951 black-and-white film adaptation starring Alistair Sims as Scrooge, and which has become as ubiquitous as Jimmy Stewart's 1946 Christmas film, It's a Wonderful Life. But the trouble with those movies, or especially any dramatic adaptation of a classic Christmas story, centers on the fact that if you want to get at the essential truth and beauty of, say, Dickens' A Christmas Carol, well, you need to drop by your local library or bookstore and read it for yourself, cover to cover. So to help motivate you in that direction, here's Kathy Chepesky reading one of the most vivacious sections from Dickens' beloved A Christmas Carol. It's so lively, in fact, that if you listen closely, you can almost hear chestnuts roasting over an open fire, if not see Scrooge standing in those 19th century London streets, looking frantically up and down as he's shown the hustle and bustle of an urban Christmas Eve by the ghost of Christmas present. Scrooge and the ghost of Christmas present stood in the city streets on Christmas morning, where, for the weather was severe, the people made a rough but brisk and not unpleasant kind of music in scraping the snow from the pavement in front of their dwellings and from the tops of their houses, whence it was mad delight to the boys to see it come plumping down into the road below and splitting into artificial little snowstorms. The house fronts looked black enough and the windows blacker, contrasting with the smooth white sheet of snow upon the roofs and with the dirtier snow upon the ground, which last deposit had been ploughed up in deep furrows by the heavy wheels of carts and wagons. Furrows that crossed and recrossed each other hundreds of times where the great streets branched off and made intricate channels hard to trace in the thick yellow mud and icy water. The sky was gloomy, and the shortest streets were choked up with a dingy mist, half-thawed, half-frozen, whose heavier particles descended in a shower of sooty atoms, as if all the chimneys in Great Britain had, by one consent, caught fire and were blazing away to their dear heart's content. There was nothing very cheerful in the climate or the town, and yet there was an air of cheerfulness abroad that the clearest summer air and brightest summer sun might have endeavoured to diffuse in vain. For the people who were shoveling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another from the parapets, and now and then exchanging a facetious snowball, better-natured missile by far than many a wordy jest, laughing heartily if it went right, and not less heartily if it went wrong. The poulterer's shops were still half open, and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. There were great round pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts, shaped like the waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the street in their apoplectic opulence. 
There were ruddy, brown-faced, broad-girthed Spanish onions, shining in the fatness of their growth like Spanish friars and winking from their shelves in wanton slyness at the girls as they went by and glanced demurely at the hung-up mistletoe. There were pears and apples clustering high in blooming pyramids. There were bunches of grapes made in the shopkeeper's benevolence to dangle from conspicuous hooks that people's mouths might water gratis as they passed. There were piles of filberts, mossy and brown, recalling in their fragrance ancient walks among the woods and pleasant shufflings ankle-deep through withered leaves. There were Norfolk biffins, squat and swarthy, setting off the yellow of the oranges and lemons, and in the great compactness of their juicy persons, urgently entreating and beseeching to be carried home in paper bags and eaten after dinner. The very gold and silver fish set forth among these choice fruits in a bowl, though members of a dull and stagnant-blooded race, appeared to know that there was something going on, and to a fish went gasping round and round their little world in slow and passionless excitement. The grocers! Oh, the grocers! Nearly closed, with perhaps two shutters down or one, but through those gaps such glimpses... It was not alone that the scales descending on the counter made a merry sound, or that the twine and roller parted company so briskly, or that the canisters were rattled up and down like juggling tricks, or even that the blended scents of tea and coffee were so grateful to the nose, or even that the raisins were so plentiful and rare, the almonds so extremely white, the sticks of cinnamon so long and straight, the other spices so delicious, the candied fruits so caked and spotted with molten sugar as to make the coldest lookers-on feel faint and subsequently bilious. Nor was it that the figs were moist and pulpy, or that the French plums blushed in modest tartness from their highly decorated boxes, or that everything was good to eat and in its Christmas dress. But the customers were all so hurried and so eager in the hopeful promise of the day that they tumbled up against each other at the door, crashing their wicker baskets wildly, and left their purchases upon the counter and came running back to fetch them, and committed hundreds of the like mistakes in the best humour possible, while the grocer and his people were so frank and fresh that the polished hearts with which they fastened their aprons behind might have been their own, worn outside for general inspection and for Christmas daws to peck at if they chose. But soon the steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes and with their gayest faces. And at the same time, there emerged from scores of by-streets, lanes, and nameless turnings, innumerable people carrying their dinners to the baker's shops. The sight of these poor revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him, in a baker's doorway, and taking off the covers as their bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch. And it was a very uncommon kind of torch, for once or twice when there were angry words between some dinner carriers who had jostled each other, he shed a few drops of water on them from it, and their good humour was restored directly for they said it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas Day, and so it was. God love it, so it was. In time, the bells ceased and the bakers were shut up, and yet there was a genial shadowing forth of all these dinners and the progress of their cooking in the thawed blotch of wet above each baker's oven, where the pavement smoked as if its stones were cooking too. 
Is there a peculiar flavor in what you sprinkle from your torch? asked Scrooge. There is my own. Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day? asked Scrooge. To any kindly given. To a poor one most. Why to a poor one most? asked Scrooge. Because it needs it most. They went on, invisible as they had been before, into the suburbs of the town. It was a remarkable quality of the ghost, which Scrooge had observed at the baker's, that, notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease, and that he stood beneath a low roof quite as gracefully, and like a supernatural creature, as it was possible he could have done in any lofty hall. And perhaps it was the pleasure the good spirit had in showing off this power of his, or else it was his own kind, generous, hearty nature and his sympathy with all poor men that led him straight to Scrooge's clerks, for there he went and took Scrooge with him, holding to his robe. And on the threshold of the door, the spirit smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinklings of his torch. Think of that. Bob had but 15 bob a week himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but 15 copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-roomed house. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons which are cheap and make a goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes and getting the corners of his monstrous shirt collar, Bob's private property, conferred upon his son and heir in honour of the day, into his mouth, rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired and yearned to show his linen in the fashionable parks. And now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the baker's they had smelt the goose and known it for their own, and basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies, while he, not proud although his collar nearly choked him, blew the fire until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. "'What has ever got your precious father, then?' said Mrs. Cratchit, "'and your brother, Tiny Tim. "'And Martha weren't as late last Christmas Day by half an hour.' "'Here's Martha, mother,' said a girl, appearing as she spoke. "'Here's Martha, mother,' cried the two young Cratchits. "'Hurrah! There's such a goose, Martha!' "'Why, bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are,' said Mrs. Cratchit, "'kissing her a dozen times and taking off her shawl and bonnet for her with officious zeal.' We'd a deal of work to finish up last night, replied the girl, and had to clear away this morning, mother. Well, never mind, so long as you are come, said Mrs. Cratchit. Sit you down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm, Lord bless you. No, no, there's father coming, cried the two young Cratchits, who were everywhere at once. Hide, Martha, hide. So Martha hid herself, and in came little Bob, the father, with at least three feet of comforter, exclusive of the fringe, hanging down before him, and his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, and Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Alas for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch, and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. "'Why, where's our Martha?' cried Bob Cratchit, looking around. "'Not coming,' said Mrs. Cratchit. 
Not coming, said Bob, with a sudden declension in his high spirits, for he had been Tim's blood horse all the way from the church and had come home rampant. Not coming upon Christmas Day? Martha didn't like to see him disappointed, if it were only in joke. So she came out prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms while the two young Cratchits hustled tiny Tim and bore him off into the wash house that he might hear the pudding singing in the copper. And how did little Tim behave, asked Mrs. Cratchit, when she had rallied Bob on his credulity and Bob had hugged his daughter to his heart's content. As good as gold, said Bob, and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me, coming home, that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Bob's voice was tremulous when he told them this and trembled more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and hearty. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to his stool by the fire. And while Bob, turning up his cuffs, as if, poor fellow, they were capable of being made more shabby, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons and stirred it round and round and put it on the hob to simmer. Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon to which a black swan was a matter of course. And in truth it was something very like it in that house. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy, ready beforehand in a little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigour. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits set chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves, and mounting guard upon their posts, crammed spoons into their mouths lest they should shriek for goose before their turn came to be helped. At last the dishes were set on and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause as Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it into the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all round the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife and feebly cried, Hurrah! There never was such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there ever was such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavor, size and cheapness were the themes of universal admiration. Eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. Indeed, as Mrs. Cratchit said with great delight, surveying one small atom of a bone upon the dish, they hadn't ate it all at last. Yet everyone had had enough and the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. But now, the plates being changed by Miss Belinda, Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous to bear witnesses to take the pudding up and bring it in. Suppose it should not be done enough. Suppose it should break in turning out. Suppose somebody should have got over the wall of the backyard and stolen it while they were merry with the goose. 
a supposition at which the two young Cratchits became livid. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Hello! A great deal of steam. The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like a washing day. That was the cloth. A smell like an eating house and a pastry cook's next door to each other with a laundress's next door to that. That was the pudding. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling proudly, with the pudding like a speckled cannonball so hard and firm, blazing in half of half a quart of ignited brandy and adorned with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, a wonderful pudding, Bob Cratchit said, and calmly too that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. Mrs. Cratchit said that now the weight was off her mind, she would confess she had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it, but nobody thought or said it was at all a small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat heresy to do so. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. At last the dinner was all done. The cloth was cleared, the hearth swept, and the fire made up. The compound in the jug being tasted and considered perfect, apples and oranges were put upon the table, and a shovelful of chestnuts on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning half a one. And at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers and a custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug, however, as well as golden goblets would have done. And Bob served it out with beaming looks, while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and cracked noisily. Then Bob proposed, A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. Which all the family re-echoed. God bless us, Every one, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. That was Kathy Chepesky reading a selection from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, published just before Christmas, 1843. We hope you enjoyed our four short stories celebrating the true spirit, if not the religious intent, of Christmas. And imagine, if you will, what it must have been like back in the 19th century when the upper Mattawaska and Opeonga River valleys were first being settled by many of the families who still remain here today. Imagine old Charlie Thomas getting his Montreal Gazette delivered by mail to his trading post at Golden Lake in 1850. Or John Dennison in 1864 going to the Cumbermere Post Office that Christmas. Or that very same year up at Bark Lake, Richard Skuse setting up his post office. Or better still, imagine Josh Billings welcoming the mail sleigh from Eganville that first Christmas at his new post office in 1878, just west of what would become the little village of Barry's Bay, a place where a Hallmark movie definitely needs to be made. Heartbreak and all. Imagine somebody arriving with horse and sleigh to pick up their mail and then going home to Pog Lake or along the Siberia Road to read to their children one of those great Christmas stories published in their favorite newspaper or magazine. What a Christmas movie! I'm Kristen Marchand, and for Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chapesky, Rob Filipkowski, Lynn Stewart, and our producer Barry Conway, We'd like to wish all of our listeners all over the world a very Merry Christmas. Good day, and God bless.